Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12. And we'll read all the way through chapter 2 this morning. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out wisdom, all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. And I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of tr fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep them from. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil." Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. 
So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be a wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is a vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw as from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the busyness of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. You might be familiar with uh, rumspringa, uh, which is a fun word to say if you're not familiar with rumspringa. Uh, it's uh, a period of time in a, in a young Amish person's life when they are deciding uh, if they're going to be a part of the, the Amish church, the Amish way of life uh, for the rest of their life, or if they're going to leave, if they're going to leave their community, every, everything really that they know. So rumspringa means uh, running around without, uh, without borders, without boundaries. So at age 16, um, a young person enters uh, rumspringa, and uh, they, they get to experience freedom, really, from uh, what they've grown up under. And certainly the Amish live a different life than really almost anyone in the United States. Um, so they, they can do, uh, they can wear jeans, they can wear t-shirts, uh, girls can wear uh, shorter skirts. Um, uh, apparently our, our media has kind of blown up Rumspringa to make it look like every Amish kid just goes hog wild, and, and uh, maybe that's not exactly how it is, but certain, certainly some of them do. Um, there, there are parties that, that they go to and experiment in drugs and, and alcohol use. Um, they do, uh, some of them, uh, test pleasure. They, they go to the, the limits, and they're what they're supposed to be doing in this time is figuring out, do, do I want what the world has to offer me, or do I in fact want to live the way my, my parents have raised me and the church has raised me? So they, they end rumspring. It could, be, it could be just a few months for a kid to make that decision. It could be a year, two years. But, but in the end, they decide what they're going to do, if they're, uh, if they're going to remain Amish uh, or not. And Ecclesiastes can feel a little bit like rumspringer. Um, as the preacher tests what life has to offer. But the preacher isn't a young teenager. He, he has lived life. We get the vantage point of someone who has lived life, and he's sharing 
all of his experiences and the lessons that he's learned, the good and the bad from these experiments in life. And we're invited to learn from these experiments, to take the results of his experiments um, and not have to explore all these roads ourselves. And you get the feeling as you read the book of Ecclesiastes, and if you haven't done that yet, I'd, I'd encourage you, read through it a couple times this week. But as you read it, you get the feeling that you're listening to a wise old sage. And the question is, will you learn from the lessons that he has lived? Our truth statement today is, uh, we will not find happiness in pursuing wisdom, work, pleasure, or possessions, but we will find joy in eating, drinking, and toil if we receive it as a gift from God. Work and pleasure, possessions, wisdom, all these things can, can be good, but they will never fulfill us. They were never meant to fulfill us the way that God is meant to fulfill us. And those things, uh, we can enjoy them when we enjoy them in God as gifts from God. So let's jump into our passage, verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out wisdom uh, by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. If the preacher isn't Solomon, it's at least portraying a Solomon-esque figure, a Solomon-like person, uh, speaking from the position of someone that by the world's standards has it all, rich beyond belief, wise beyond belief, um, able to, to do really anything he wanted. And it does fit Solomon. Uh, God gave him the opportunity to ask for anything he wanted, and what Solomon asked for was wisdom. You might remember God told him that he would give him a wise and discerning mind, unlike any before him or after him. And Solomon, he still had to work for this wisdom, for, for his knowledge. God didn't just download it. Um, much of Solomon's life was devoted to gaining knowledge. And he says, I applied my heart. And when he says that, it, it, it means this pursuit in seeking wisdom came from the core of his being. It's deep within him. This was his passion. This wasn't some flippant quest. You'll also read in, in Ecclesiastes several times, either under heaven or under the sun. And what the preacher is doing is he's evaluating life under heaven or under the sun, life without God. Every once in a while, he'll poke his head above that plane and, and, and look into life above the sun or, or life in heaven. But for the most part, he's evaluating life under the sun without God. He wanted to know everything about everything under the sun. He was going to leave no stone unturned. And he's asking the big questions of life. He's trying to find meaning. And I assume all of us can relate to this. Either previously in life you've asked these questions, you've wrestled through these, or maybe these are exactly the types of questions you're asking right now in life. You're wondering, what is the point of life? How do I make the most out of life? What is my purpose in life? How can I be happy? What will fulfill me? And maybe you feel the frustration that we read in our passage today of not getting what you thought you were going to end up with. You, you put all this work in, you, you've made these sacrifices in life to, to pursue your dream, and then one day you realize it's not all it's cracked up to be. I wonder if you've ever felt like Jacob in Genesis 29. He, he works his tail off for seven years 
to marry the woman of his dreams, Rachel. The seven years is up. He goes through the ceremony, all the celebration to marry Rachel. He goes into his tent to consummate his marriage to Rachel, and he wakes up the next morning to find out his father-in-law pulled the switcheroo on him, and he gave him Rachel's sister instead of Rachel. I hope you don't feel like that in marriage, but maybe, maybe that's how life feels. Like you've, you've worked and worked and sacrificed. You've done all the little things, hard things, easy things to get what you want to achieve your dream, but you wake up and you realize you've been duped. The dream wasn't that great. It, it certainly wasn't worth all the toil. And here you're asking yourself, how can I be happy? How can I find fulfillment that my soul longs for? Or maybe like the preacher, so much of what you filled your life with leaves you wanting more. And you have this nagging feeling there must be more to life than what you have. He says it's an unhappy business, and, and this word refers to something bad or evil. So uh, Phil Riken, author, pastor, he says the problem isn't just that life makes us unhappy, but, but the, that it's evil in itself. It's not just an uncomfortable business, but a bad business. He talks about wisdom, too, and this is not heavenly wisdom. Remember, this is life under the sun. This is life without God. This is earthly wisdom. This is, strictly speaking, this is human wisdom. This is without God's special revelation. Verse 14, he says, I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity. And I'm sure Pastor Gary talked about this word last week. The recording didn't work, so I didn't get to listen to it. Um, but vanity, this word is, is hevel, and it, it means, like, think of uh, something, think of smoke, right? Like, um, uh, maybe, uh, maybe you knew someone that could blow smoke rings. Um, it, it, they look cool. I'm not saying that's a good thing to do, but they look cool. Um, and, and a smoke ring, it looks like you should be able to grab it. Like, it has a, a form to it. And yet, if you, if you tried, it would slip through your fingers. You would end up with, with nothing. And that's, that's kind of the picture of this word, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Striving after the wind, someone described it as, as chasing or shepherding the wind. We have the saying, it's like herding cats. That sounds bad, but herding the wind sounds worse to me. Both are great word pictures. In verse 15, he says, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I wonder if you feel sometimes like you're trying to count what isn't even there. Like life is, is, is that elusive for you. Happiness, fulfillment is that elusive. And he goes on to say, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. I applied my heart to know wisdom, to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. And when he says madness and folly, this isn't mental health. This is, this is like mad, foolish living. So Solomon, he's comparing wise living and, and, and foolish living. Right? He's looking, is there any advantage to the person that lives rightly, that lives wisely, to the person that just lives like a mad fool doing whatever they want? We don't normally think of one person having both of those, both wisdom and living incredibly foolishly, and yet Solomon did. First Kings 11, we, we read about Solomon's turning from the Lord, his, his great moral failure. He married a ton of women. 
and, and that wasn't even enough. He had a ton of concubines, and he ends up worshiping their idols. He ends up turning from God, and here's this man, the wisest man ever, and yet he lived like a total fool. He, he knew more about folly than anyone ever should. In verse 18, he said, For much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And vexation is an irritation. It's a, it's a frustration like within your soul, like verging on anger. And maybe you relate to this. Like the, the more we know, so often the more brokenness we're able to see in this world. Maybe you remember as a kid, adults, maybe as your parents or, or a teacher or someone, they're talking with other adults, and you can't quite understand what they're talking about. So you ask a question, you want to figure out what it is. You can tell it's important. And, and, and they basically tell you, oh, you're too young. Like, this isn't good for you to know. And you just want to know. Well, in due time, you grow up. And, and with that knowledge, with that wisdom, you, you get to know some of those things that, that those adults wisely thought weren't good for you to know at that time. You see problems all over this world. This knowledge, this wisdom doesn't pay out, hence the saying, ignorance is bliss. Think of how many problems in the world you wished you didn't know anything about. The more knowledge we have often comes with trouble. It's easy to understand why the preacher says with wisdom comes vexation and knowledge brings sorrow. And the question is, how far will this wisdom take us? What are the outer limits of wisdom? And he's showing us the best thinking that man can do. The farthest a man's mind can take them on its own. We can study philosophy. We can research every religion, every belief system. We can take self-help classes. We can, we can invest in years of, of psychotherapy and soul-searching and, and still end up frustrated. Because human reason can only take us so far. God warns us not to boast in our wisdom, but only in knowledge of him. Jeremiah 9.23 Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1.19 For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. God is so good in, in, in showing us the, the limits of, of wisdom. He doesn't leave us in the despair that our minds can only take us so far. Chapter 2, he goes on, he, he says to himself, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? And he says he, he, he decided to, to try out alcohol. He tries wine out to see if that will cheer his body. He says he laid hold of folly until he could see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during their few days of this life. And then in verse 10, he says, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. Can you imagine giving into every pleasure 
your eyes desire. To never say no to any impulse. Imagine the wake of disaster you would leave behind you. Imagine the pain that you would cause yourself and others. For him, part of the pleasure that he gave into was his work and his toil. And for some of you, that sounds crazy. All you're doing is working so you can stop working, right? But, but he, he loved work, and God, God created work. Work was there before the fall. It was part of God's good creation. So, so the preacher worked, and he worked hard. Verses 4 through 8, he tells us a bit about his works. He said, I made great works. I built houses I planted vineyards. I made myself gardens and parks. And it's, it's, it's like, whether he knew it or not, it's like he's going back and making this, this secular garden of Eden, trying to get back to what was good. He said he planted all kinds of fruit trees, which I find funny. I guarantee Solomon didn't plant a single tree. <laughs> that guy wasn't picking up a shovel. He's like, hey, go dig that tree. Um, but what he did do was he was the mastermind behind all of it, which is a lot harder. He was the architect. He was the city planner. He was the designer. He, he came up with all of it and, and, and got it all to work, all this work to be done in order. He said, I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. My little lot that we bought like 10 years ago, I think it had four trees on it. I planted like another 12 or 14 maybe. I'm not sure how many trees you have to have to have a forest but I don't, I, I don't know anyone that's planted their own forest. Right? This is what Solomon had. He had slaves. He said he had great possessions of herds, more than any before him in Jerusalem. He said he gathered silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. Right? Not, I had the treasure of a king. I had the treasure of kings. Not, not I had the treasure of a land or a province. I had the treasure of provinces. He was loaded. Right? More money than Bill Gates or whoever's on the top right now. He said he got singers, he got concubines, all to the delight of men. In verse 9, he said, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. He was loaded beyond belief. He had everything. It's easy for us to see that and go, man, that is crazy. I, don't, I can't even imagine what that would be like. I certainly don't know firsthand what that's like. But think about the access that we have that surpasses Solomon. Right? We, simple thing I was thinking about, I can get food from anywhere around the world. Right? I can get it to me and taste, taste these, these, these foods from anywhere around the world. He didn't have heat. He didn't have air conditioning. I'm grateful for air conditioning. He didn't have refrigeration. It, it said that he had to hire singers, right, to have music. Right? I just, I've got like five options on my iPhone to listen to music. Like, we have luxuries that he knew nothing about. We, we, we think about sex, how much sex he had. Man, the internet is an unfiltered place for sexual perversion beyond what Solomon ever could have imagined. So when we think that we don't know what it was like to have access to all this to test that whatever, man, in a lot of ways, we have even more than he did. We have luxuries that Solomon, as smart and creative, as imaginative as he was, he never could have envisioned. Verse 11, he said, Then I considered all that my hands had done, all the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity 
a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. All of his wealth, all of his possessions, all of his work, he felt like he gained nothing. His accomplishments meant nothing. The pleasure didn't make him happy. It didn't fulfill him. Leonard Wolf, uh, author, Brit, uh, British political theorist, civil servant, he helped uh, start the Bloomsbury Group. He had this to say, I see clearly that I've achieved practically nothing. The world today in history uh, of the human anthill during the past five to seven years would be exactly the same as it is if I had played ping pong instead of sitting on committees, writing books and memoranda. I have therefore to make a rather ignanimous confession that I must have in a long life grounded between 150,000 and 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. This is a man who wrote more than 20 books on literature, politics, economics, and in the end it felt like a waste to him. If you were one of the best in the world at your job, do you think that would fulfill you? Kevin Durant, this last week of the Golden State Warriors in the NBA, he came out and said, I'll never be fulfilled by playing basketball. Kevin Durant was rookie of the year. He's an eight-time All-Star, two-time All-Star MVP, two-time World Champion, two-time NBA Finals MVP. He's one of the greatest basketball players of this generation. He's on the list, the short list of greatest players ever, and he sees that he will never be fulfilled by basketball. Have you come to a similar conclusion that what you thought would bring happiness or fulfillment will never fill you up? No relationship, no job, no accomplishment, no pleasure, nothing under the sun will give you what you long for. And those things are fine, but they were never meant to fulfill the longings <clears throat> of your soul. He does admit in verses 13 and 14 that, that wisdom, living wisely, is probably better than being a fool. Like if you're playing the odds, your life's probably going to go better if you live with wisdom. And then verse 14 ends this way. It says, and yet I perceive the same event happens to all of them, meaning everyone dies. Verse 15, he says, then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen also to me. Why then have I been so very wise? I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come, all will have long been forgotten. Right? He's saying, after we die, no one will remember you. So let's do a little experiment here. Raise your hand if you remember all of your great-grandparents' names and where they were born. Whoa, man, I didn't know the bar was going to be that low. Let's start with your grandparents. Never mind. Um, one person? <laughs> I don't either, but... I, I thought you guys were more connected than I was. So here's what that tells us. <laughs> I'm not even going to ask about great-grandparents now. I was going to throw in middle name in case there are a bunch of you. Um, we're a couple generations away, each one of us, three, maybe four generations away from everyone on this planet not knowing who we are. That's a sobering thought. Right? He says, what's, what's the point? Verse 16 says, the end of 16, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. He goes on, he says, I hated toil, seeing that, that I have to leave what I've earned to the man who will come after me, and he'll be the master of it, and I don't know if he's, if he's wise or if he's a fool. I'm going to work my whole life, live this inheritance to someone, and maybe they'll be smart with it. 
doubt they'll appreciate it because they certainly didn't work for it. Are you depressed yet reading this book? If you are down, you're actually right where you should be. We don't want to miss what he's doing here. If we take the preacher's approach, we will experience just as much vexation. We will never escape Ecclesiastes. If we recognize what he has learned, we will see the utter hopelessness of living life under the sun, of life without God. Nothing will fill you like you hope it will. Nothing apart from God. Nothing under the sun will fulfill you like you hope it will. It is dark and dreary. I love camping out in the middle of nowhere, especially because I love getting away from the city lights and seeing the stars at night. I don't know how long it's been since, since you've done that, but if you get out far enough and if there's few enough lights, you remember why they call our galaxy the Milky Way. It's absolutely incredible under the dark, dark sky to see the brilliance of the stars, and that's what the preacher's doing here. He wants us to know how dead life without God is, how meaningless every godless pursuit is, so that God in his glory shines brightly. He paints a dark picture so that Christ can be seen in his brilliant light. Martin Luther wrote that the end of chapter 2 explains everything preceding it in the book and everything following it. He said that it is the principal conclusion. In fact, he said, it is the point of the whole book. Let's read verses 24 through 26. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting. Only to give to one who pleases God, this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is the first positive moment in the book. I don't even know if it feels positive to you. But it's the first positive moment. On the, on the one hand, we have this, this clear, pretty simple truth. Everything in life is a gift from God, that we need to recognize his gracious provision and enjoy what he's given us. Whether it's, whether it's a meal, whether it's a conversation with a friend, maybe it's watching like your kid play a sport, any, any good thing, your work, gardening, whatever it is, we can enjoy it. We can recognize that, that it's a gift from God. It's not meant to fulfill us. It's not what gives us purpose, but it is. It is still a good thing that God has given us. And at some point this week, I, I realized, um, I recognized that I was just complaining uh, about, about dumb things even. Like not even things that matter in the world, but just dumb things. And, and I... Uh, I think people that know me well would probably go, Greg, you don't complain that much. But in my heart, I realized this week, I, I do. I, there's just stuff I complain about, I grumble about under my breath. Do you complain or do you recognize all the gifts that God has given you? If we saw everything as a gift from God, I wonder, I wonder if that would curb our consumerism. I wonder if we would feel so much need to buy so many things. 
The preacher's saying, if you want happiness and joy, see what you have as gifts from the hand of God. Right? Most of what he mentions, they're good. Right? Learning's good. Gardening's good. Achievements can be good. Houses, music, little alcohol, wealth, working hard, all good. Concubine's bad, right? There's a couple not good. <laughs> but most of the stuff, he's like, this, these are good, good things. These are gifts. But he was on this quest, seeing if these things would fulfill him. They were his treasures. And Christ is the only treasure that will ever fulfill us. Now, I don't think the end of chapter 2 is just saying that we need to enjoy the, these, these gifts from God. That's just this transaction that we walk away from God. I think, I think it's pointing to a relationship, to knowing God, that, that life without God is full of unrest. Verse 23 said, For all his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Then it says, Even in the night his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. Life apart with God, uh, life, life apart from God, there is no rest. So, so he's holding up all these different things, possessions, wealth, pleasure, wisdom, and, and comparing it to knowing and treasuring God. We can try and extract happiness from wealth, from knowledge, from accomplishments, from pleasure, from work, but they're all hevel. Right? They're all smoke-like. It looks like you can grab them, but when you try, it's just going to go right between your fingers. Or you can know and treasure God who's given you everything you have. And when, when, when those things that aren't your treasure... Right? Those, those things that aren't God, when those aren't your treasure, then you can enjoy them for the gifts that they are. Philip Ryken said at the end of all of our questing, he comes to find us in the person of his own son, Jesus Christ, whom the Bible describes as the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians 1.24. Jesus said this in Matthew 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man who built his house on the rock, the rain fell and the floods came. The winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house in the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. What is, what is your life built on? Is it built on a foundation like sand or like hevel? Ecclesiastes and, and Jesus are clear that any foundation outside of Christ will totally fail us. Let me remind you what he said in verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done, the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Jesus said in Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The only sure foundation is trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that his blood atoned for your sin so that you can have life to the full right now to last forever. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. I'm so thankful for your word. God, I pray that as we go through this book that you would open up Ecclesiastes to us that you would be our teacher, that we would see exactly why you put this here so that we would worship the one true God, that we wouldn't 
Man, we wouldn't even flirt with anything else, Lord, but that you would be our treasure. You would be what we long for, God. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, Philip Ryken said this. He said, Jesus entered into all the vexation of life in this fallen world in order to show us the wise way to live. His way is the way of, uh, his way is the way of faith in which we trust God to be true to his word. It is the way of hope in which we look forward to what God has for us in the future. It is the way of love in which we find meaning in life by living for others rather than for ourselves. If you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, during these songs we're going to celebrate with communion. Um, if you've trusted that, that Jesus is the one that saved you from sin, from, from treasuring anything else but Him, then this meal is for you. If you haven't trusted Jesus, or if you find that you're hoping that something else will fulfill you, the things from God, but, but not God Himself, will bring you happiness, meaning, fulfillment, I'd encourage you, trust Jesus today. We have people in the back on our prayer team that would love to pray with you. If you, if you realize that, that you're running after things, that you're putting your hope in other things, if you've been let down by different things, go back for prayer. We have people that, that would love to pray with you. Let's sing and, and uh, enjoy communion together.